Good morning. All right. Well, we are continuing our investigation into the book of Ephesians, one of the letters that Paul wrote to churches. And today we're going to be reading from Ephesians, reading and studying through Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9. And we're going to read this together. Just read it out loud. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the water, washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, In singleness of heart, as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm, as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them. For you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. There was a workshop over the summer that my mom taught on preaching, and I originally didn't want to be part of it because I had some other ideas about doing my own community group. But I went ahead and participated. I didn't want to miss out on the chance to learn what she had to share on this subject. And those of us who were members of the class ended up kind of being assigned or selecting different parts of Ephesians that we were going to preach on. And I sort of got assigned this one because I dragged my feet on choosing a different one. And I told them I wasn't going to do it. (laughs) I I had a lot of emotional resistance to this passage, to this topic, to this conversation, certainly to standing up here and preaching on it. I think there's an experience that I've had, maybe some of you have had, of judgment, of anger, Um, within my own heart toward the church 
in general and specific people that I've known in my life as I feel they've misinterpreted this passage. And certainly a fear of being judged by those who might disagree with what I would present. And before I even really began working on what I was going to say, I had to just spend some time with the Holy Spirit, resting through my own emotions, my own thoughts, my own brokenness, my own anger, my own judgment. I'm going to take a little pause. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about that I was going to be preaching on this, and she goes, you know, listening is really hard work. And she referenced something that my dad said decades ago, probably at this point, (laughs) uh, that she had remembered him hearing her say, which is if you hear something that you don't agree with, you listen for approximately a minute and a half before you stop listening altogether to the remainder of what it is that you conclude you won't agree with. I told her I thought a minute and a half was way too long. <laughs> and so here's, I'm just going to list for you. I was just doing Google. I was curious. Well, how do we listen and when, why do we have problems listening to things either we know we are disagreeing with or that we think we might disagree with? And uh, the University of Missouri lists these poor listening habits. Calling the subject matter uninteresting. Criticizing the delivery or appearance of the speaker. Disagreeing and beginning to spend more time in our own thoughts developing counter-arguments. In cases like these, our listening efficiency drops nearly to zero because of the overstimulation of our disagreement. Listening only for facts, tolerating or creating distractions for those sitting around us, evading the difficult, submitting to emotional words. Democrat and Republican are emotional words for a lot of people. Men or women are other words that can be emotional. There's some really emotional words in this passage. It's a tough passage. And historically, this subject has evoked a lot of disagreement, not only within the church, but certainly outside the walls of the church throughout the world. And misunderstanding of what God's heart is in this passage has often been presented as fact. This passage contains difficult concepts. They're going to bring conviction and hopefully repentance to our own hearts. They also bring awareness of the faults of those around us. And there's certainly some highly emotional trigger words. Or we might think we've heard enough messages on this topic. We already know what we believe and we have all the answers. There's nothing more we need to learn from this passage. As I explored my own emotional response to this passage, I clearly heard the Lord say, I did not write this for judgment. I did not write this for judgment or for division. So if we can set aside for a short period of time our judgment and the enemy's plan for division in the church and in the home, I think we can explore what he might want to to say to us. No matter what we conclude from this passage, even if you end up concluding all sorts of different things than what I have concluded in my own life, we need the presence of the Holy Spirit to walk out those conclusions and the power of the Holy Spirit to live it. So let's invite him. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. You desire unity. You desire freedom. With those 
things would your truth and your beauty that you have for the people you name in this passage and those in this room come forth as we learn what you have to say to us. In your name we pray. All right, we're going to talk about a few different things. I'm going to talk about some key concepts, some key words that are repeated throughout the passage, some of the actual language underneath some of the controversial or troublesome words, some history of what was happening in the Greek and Roman culture that was saturated in the people that would have been listening to this letter that Paul wrote. We're going to look at what Paul didn't say, specific words he chose not to use. That gives us insight to what he was saying. What is God offering to each of these groups of people, and what is he asking to each of these groups of people? Some concepts that have reoccurred throughout Ephesians that we've been hearing all of our other preachers talk about are unity and equality between groups of people that were formerly divided, and breaking down walls between groups of people, freedom to live in God's way, and peace between people who were formerly in conflict. Let's read a few passages from other parts of Ephesians that highlight what I'm talking about. First is chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we ever heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. And now Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall. We used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, He created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. Ephesians 3.6, as you read over what I've written to you, you'll be able to see for yourselves into the mystery of Christ. None of our ancestors understood this. Only in our time has it been made clear by God's spirit through his holy apostles and prophets of this new order. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God and those who have heard of him all their lives, what I've been calling outsiders and insiders, stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, the same help, the same promises in Christ Jesus. The message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. So when we get into a part of this book that 
we experience resistance or we're not exactly sure what God is trying to say, we can use the whole letter to help bring us into the bigger picture of what's being said and to help identify what was God's heart that he was getting at, that point that Paul was making over and over and over and over and over and over again throughout the letter, and the whole letter should support that. This letter was written by Paul. He was in prison in chains for the gospel at the time he wrote this letter, and there's a good chance that someone else physically wrote it for him as he dictated. There's a few things we should know about Paul and his style of writing that will influence how we understand this passage. Paul really liked long sentences and long ideas all strung together. In fact, many times we have a whole paragraph that is essentially a sentence, the way that he wrote it. Also, the original language was written without punctuation and without paragraphs. So as our translators are trying to bring this original language into our English language, there isn't really a way to capture having no punctuation and no paragraphs because we have those things. And so where they choose to put those often really affects how we understand it. Um, And I think there's times when we might see, if we look at the original, that it might not be exactly how our English translation worked out how they grouped the words together or the ideas. So we understand the final result partly based on the verb tense, the verb form, the structure of the sentence, connecting words, repeated words, to help draw it into something that makes sense in our own language. And sometimes the result we get in English doesn't always give us the complete picture unless we spend some time digging a little deeper. So I'm going to dig us a little bit deeper into this passage. This passage is the end of a long sentence. The sentence actually begins in Ephesians 5, and it starts this way. Do not be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery. Do be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's the ways in which we can exhibit being filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, singing, making music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he begins to break it down into the smaller subgroups. So this overarching command, don't be filled with brokenness. Don't be filled with debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. The submission to everyone, for everyone, is part of that big picture, what it's going to look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So then he's going to break it down a little bit more until it hears again how you can be filled with the Holy Spirit walking this out. All right, so now we're going to look at some of the original Greek words. Upatasso. I need to get my pronunciation little page over here. All right, so upatasso is the word used for, um, hold on. Okay, maybe I don't have this. Um, Daniel, would you switch to the next slide? Maybe I didn't make one for this. Okay, go back. All right, you're just going to have to listen. Sorry, I forgot to put this up into a slide. So I'm going to read the the full passage again, and I'm going to insert a few. uh, No, I'm not, because I'll run out of time. Okay. It'll make sense in a minute. Okay, Daniel, I'm sorry, I'm going to make you skip around. Can you go back 
to the very beginning, the very first slide that has the long passage on it. That's the right one. Okay. So this word, be subject, is upatasso. And reverence for Christ is called fubio. Fubio. And this, se- this sentence is one of those five things in the list of how we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it also leads us into what comes after. So um, later when it says, wives, be subject to your husbands, there's this little thing um, that I can't remember the name of it. Essentially, it looks like some parentheses. And it says, wives, parentheses, husbands. And what it means is, go back to the last verb, because I don't want to write so much stuff. And so the last verb is to be subject. So they're saying, all of you are going to upatasso one another out of your fubio, reverence for Christ, wives, upatasso, husbands. Okay. And then, will you go, go forward just a few, a little bit till we get to the end of this facet, Daniel? So we get to the end of this passage. I want to make one more. Yeah. Okay. So right here, the last part of this master says, with him, God, there is no partiality. Again, when we don't have punctuation and we don't have paragraphs or sentences and we're trying to understand a passage, as I was digging into this, I really felt like that last sentence didn't belong with the masters. It actually is the conclusion to this whole idea Um, It could also be interpreted, God does not play favorites. And so it's like the summary, the nutshell for this whole thing is God has no favorites, God has no partiality. And I don't really think it belongs in this paragraph. I think it should have stood on its own to summarize everything else that Paul was saying. Um, And we'll see that um, as we go forward. Okay, Daniel. So now you get back to the one where it said upatasa. I've been sick this whole week, which happens pretty much every time I preach. Um, <laughs> that's okay. One more forward. Okay. So now, um, anyway, so the point of that was that I went to bed like at 8:30 last night, the last two nights actually, after finishing this, and my amazing husband put this whole slideshow together for me. So he helped me a lot. <laughs> uh, but the. That's what I'm realizing. Okay, so the wives. Upatasso, your husbands, as to the Lord. The husband is kephali of the wife, as Christ is kephali of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. As the church, upatasso Christ, so wives to their husbands. All right, continue on, Daniel. Husbands, Agape your wives, as Christ agape the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands agape their wives as their own bodies, he who agape his wife also himself. Go ahead and skip forward, Daniel. Particular to each of you, husband, agape, wife, wife, fubio, husband. Continue on. Children, upakuo, your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Okay, next. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Let me look up how I'm saying this word. 
paideia, and instruction in the Lord. Slaves, upakul, your masters with your body in singleness of heart as you upakul Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Duoleo, and masters, yeah, duoleo with enthusiasm as to the Lord. And I didn't put it in here, but actually the word slave is duolos. So duolos, duoleo, it's the same word. Servants serve. Um, Okay, continue, Daniel. Masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven. God does not play favorites. All right, continue. Yep, I talked about that. Continue. Okay. Uptasa. So one thing that I wanted to point out before I break into each of these words is Paul introduces each of these sections, and it doesn't quite translate English, but basically he says, wives, listen up. I'm calling your attention. I'm calling your name. If you're a wife and you're sitting and you're listening, this is your chance to listen. And husbands, hey, hey, listen up. Your turn. I'm talking to you now. And he does that with each group, and it's, it's kind of the idea that if he's not talking to you, he's not talking to you. It's not your job to condemn the others. It's your job to listen up when he calls your name. Okay? <laughs> Upatasso, subject or submit yourselves. This word appears several times throughout Ephesians, and not just in this passage. And we'll explore um, what it talks about or what it means. But it's, we, what we know so far is we know it's used directed to the wives and we, it's used directed to everyone among each other. The next is fubio. This has been translated as honor, reverence, respect, or awe. The next is kephali. So kephali is the word head. In some areas, it can be used to describe the head part of the body. In, in other ancient literature outside of scripture, we can see it also talks about the idea of source, um, origin, At that time, the man's source of life, his semen, was thought to be produced in his head. So saying head represented the source of life, where life began, because apparently women had nothing to do with that. (laughs) This word is also used as the source of a river, the idea similar to our word of headwaters. And then finally, it was a military term used outside of scripture. And in that term, it was um, kind of the leader who was leading the troops into battle. And in front of him was the enemy, and around him and with him were the soldiers. All right, next. So Paul could have used a few other words in talking, for, in talking to husbands that he purposely didn't use that are used in other parts of Scripture. He did not use rosh. This is another word that meant head, the physical head. It also meant part of the body, head. It also meant leader, ruler, or chief. And it had a greater level of authority than kephali. So when we see two words he chose between, he didn't use rosh, we can conclude he didn't want it to mean leader, ruler, or chief because he used a different word. He also did not use exousia, which means to have authority over. Can you go to the next one, Daniel? 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. This is a place where we do see the word exousia. I'm just going to use it as an example. Because it's related to husband and wife relationships again. Because of cases of sexual immorality, 
Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, exousia, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority, exousia, over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another of sexual relations, except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Just interesting to see that word exousia used in husband and wife relationships in the scripture. And he's saying, men, you have some authority over your wife, specifically in regard to her body and your sexual relationship. Wives, you also have exousia over your husband's and his body in your sexual relationship. Again, a word that Paul didn't use in this passage that he could have used. All right, next is upakuo, heed, obey, listen, and attend. This word was used for the children and the slaves. Interesting, also, he did not use this word for wives. He did not tell wives to upakuo, obey their husbands. Next word is paideia. This is child training, admonition, or instruction. And it was a word specific to children. The next word is duoleuo, to serve or provide service to, and it's essentially the same, it's the action word for duolus, los, of the servant or the slave. All right, from these, oh, and there's one last one. There's all sorts of words for God, as you can imagine, or specifically for Christ. And in this passage, when he referenced Christ, when he's telling the husbands to behave to their wives like Christ is, um, he used the word, for Christ that meant savior or deliverer or redeemer. He didn't use a word that, that would have shown more power or authority, such as Lord or master. From these keywords, we can make a few simple conclusions that should hopefully be pretty logical. Everyone, all people and wives, are to upatasso, willingly choose to submit yourselves to Christ and to each other. Children and slaves are to upakuo, obey. Wives are not instructed to upakuo, obey, or to duoleu, provide service to. Husbands are not a rosh, ruler or master, and do not have exousia, authority over their wives. And slaves are not of a lesser value than masters. The verbs used in this passage have either a command form, which means you better do this, or what they call a subjunctive, which means I recommend to you, form. Of those of the verbs that were used as he's speaking to each group, five commands were spoken to men, two commands were spoken to children, one command was spoken to slaves. There were no commands to wives or to masters or to fathers. All of those were the I recommend. We also see that Christ is the standard. Every single one of these groups, as we're going to begin to break this down further, you'll see that it all comes back to Christ, that he's the ultimate one that all of us together are submitting to. And so each of the relationships that we have come back to Christ. He is to be reverenced by all. He is the standard for how a wife should honor her husband. He is the standard for how a husband is to love their wife. He is the standard that a child is respecting while obeying their parent. He is the standard of the best father and the example of how we instruct our children. He is the standard for who slaves are obeying as they obey their masters. And he is the standard of the master who serves right alongside his slaves. God does not play favorites. 
All right, the next thing I want to talk about is that Paul was turning upside down what his readers expected to hear in this passage. We're going to look at some of that historical context now. In ancient letter writing, within and outside the Bible, we have a few, um, there's kind of a formula for it. Similar, if you remember back to high school or college, whenever you learned a certain type of um, paper that you had to write, had to follow this certain structure, you had the opening and you had the, you know, the sub points and then you had your conclusion and you were following a certain form, format. And ancient letter writing had a format. They had an opening formula. This identified the sender and the recipient. It was followed next by a prayer for health or thanksgiving to the gods. The next was the body. The body would have instruction, teaching, or exhortation. And the conclusion would have expressions for affection, wishes for health and strength of the recipient. And often, not in all ancient letters, but in many ancient letters, there was something called a household code. This household code permeated ancient literature, including the Jewish writings called the Talmud, and outside Judaism as well. Everything in ancient society, Greek and Roman, was built on this household code. And it was defined by three pairs of relationships. Again, this is totally outside of the Bible. Husband and wife, father and child, master and slave. In each of these groups in ancient literature, there is only one leader and one subordinate. Husband over wife, father over child, master over slave. Other ancient household codes would command obedience and describe behavior required for wives, children, and slaves. Husbands, fathers, and masters were exempt from instruction as to how to care for their household counterparts. And in ancient society, including Roman at the time this letter was written, husbands, fathers, and masters had the legal authority to manage, control, abuse, and kill their wives, children, and slaves. The legal rights and social value of those subordinate groups were non-existent. Paul is turning this ancient code completely upside down. Instead of only telling wives, children, and slaves how to behave and obey, he tells husbands, fathers, and masters how to love and care. This was unheard of. This was unprecedented. Until this point, Husbands, fathers, and masters had ruled over without restraint. Clearly, Paul intended to undermine this ancient household code and install God's own kingdom code. We can't see how radical Jesus and Paul's teachings were until we see them in contrast to what was believed at that time. In Greek culture, we have Homer's Iliad. In this book, a classic book that you may have studied or at least heard about at some point in school, women were the cause of all conflict and suffering. Women were in the home restricted to certain tasks subordinate to men. Women had no separate identity. They were only listed as the daughter of, the wife of, or the concubine of. In Plato's writings, here's some fantastic quotes from Plato. Females are inferior in goodness to males. All those creatures generated as men who proved themselves cowardly or spent their lives in wrongdoing were transformed at their second incarnation into women. In this fashion, women and the whole female sex have come into existence. Aristotle wrote that a female is a monstrosity, a deformed male, and a deformity which occurs in the ordinary course of nature. 
He said the female sex has a more evil disposition than the male, is more forward and less courageous. He also wrote that all sperm were naturally male, but some became deformed, and that resulted in women. In the Roman culture, and I, I mentioned the Greek culture because that was just the swell of what created the Roman culture and really affecting um, the Bible, and the language we're talking about is Greek. In the Roman culture, we have a Roman uh, teacher named Aulus Gellius. He said, if we could survive without a wife, citizens of Rome, all of us would do without that nuisance. But since nature has so decreed that we cannot manage comfortably with them, nor live any way without them, we must plan for our own lasting preservation rather than our temporary pleasure. Roman citizens who were male had three names. Women, however, had only the clan name and the family name. They had no individual names. Roman law gave men permission to kill their wives for adultery, while men were legally allowed to consort with many women. Men were allowed to kill their wives for drunkenness, since alcohol made it more likely the wife might commit adultery. So generally speaking, women weren't allowed to drink wine. Roman law required Roman citizens to raise every male baby unless it was deformed at birth. Female babies could be disposed of if the father chose. If we go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, when God, when God creates, the creation account tells us about God creating man, God creating a woman. And it tells us about God's overarching intentions for women. When God created Eve, uh, one English translation describes what it says this way. Eve was a helper suitable for Adam. The word that's used there, helper, is Ezer connect. It's two words put together. Ezer is a more capable, more powerful, more intelligent ally. This word is used throughout the Old Testament. Every other time except for referring to Eve, it's talking about God. It's used in passages like this. Where does my help, my Ezer, come from? My help, my rescue, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Had God only used this word to describe Eve, women would have been more powerful than men. But instead, he follows it with this word, connect, which means to walk next to or equal. Let them rule over the earth, Genesis says. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, rule over the earth. God gave man and woman together dominion over the earth. And Eve was made as Adam's capable, powerful, intelligent ally to walk next to him as his equal. All right, so let's talk about husbands and children and fathers and what the historical context was for these groups of people. At this time, families were dominated by men. At the head of every Roman family group was the oldest living male. He was called the paterfamilia, or father of the family. He looked after the family's business affairs and property and could perform religious rites on their behalf. The paterfamilia had absolute rule over his household and children, even grown children. If they angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, or kill them. Only the paterfamilia could own property. Whatever their age until their father died, his sons only received an allowance to manage their own households. This is where we get the story of the prodigal son, where the son says, I want my allowance now. He's talking to that paterfamilia and said, I don't want to wait until you die to get my authority to rule over my stuff. I want it now. <clears throat> the paterfamilia had the right to decide whether to keep newborn babies. At birth, the midwife placed the baby on the ground. 
If the paterfamilia picked it up, the baby was accepted into the family. If he did not pick up the child, he considered it deformed, or it was a female and he didn't want it, they took it outside to be exposed, meaning deliberately abandoned. This usually happened to deformed babies, or if the father thought the family could not support, could not support another child. Babies were abandoned in specific places, and it was assumed an abandoned baby who survived would be picked up and taken as a slave. The training of children was conducted by both parents with emphasis on moral rather than intellectual development. The most important virtues for a child to acquire were reverence for the gods, respect for the law, unquestioning and instant obedience to authority, truthfulness, and self-reliance. Until the age of seven, boys and girls were taught by their mother to speak Latin and basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. At seven, a boy went on to a regular teacher, and a girl remained her mother's constant companion to learn home management and most often marry young. From her mother, the girl would learn to spin, weave, and sew, and other household management tasks. The boy was trained by his father. If his father was a farmer, he would learn his father's trade to plow, plant, and reap. If his father was a man of high position in Rome, his son stood beside him in the atrium when callers were received, so as to gain practical knowledge of politics and affairs of state. The father would also train the son in the use of weapons, military exercises, riding, swimming, wrestling, and boxing. There was a piece of jewelry called a bulla, similar to a locket. It contained an amulet as a protection against evil. This would be placed around the neck of a newborn child when the paterfamilia raised it up to say it's going to be part of our family. And they would, um, the girls would wear that. It was um, on a chain or a cord or a strap, and it was like a goodwill token. And the girls would wear that until the evening of their wedding day. At that time, she would lay it aside along with all of her other childhood belongings and her childhood religion. She would exchange all of that authority of her father's home for the authority of her husband's home. The bulla was worn by the boy until the day he became a Roman citizen. At that point, it would be removed and dedicated to the gods. Slaves and masters, some history on those groups of people. The entire Roman state and cultural apparatus was built on the exploitation of one part of the population to provide for the other. This was regarded as a commodity. Any good treatment of a slave was to preserve their value as a worker and as an asset in the case of future sale. Some slave owners were more generous than others, and there were, in a few cases, the possibility of a slave earning their freedom. Slavery was not considered an evil, but a necessity by Roman citizens. The ways that slaves were obtained were many. They could be obtained as prisoners of war, adults or children. They could be those exposed, abandoned infants. They could be from desperate families who sold their children into slavery. They could be offspring of other slaves. Um, if a female slave had a baby, regardless of who fathered the baby, the baby would be a slave. They could be obtained through piracy or through slave trade. Slavery was not based on race in the Roman culture. Slave markets existed in most large towns. Slaves with higher education or more desirable skills were expensive and sought after. All slaves and the slaves' children were the property of their owners who could sell them or rent them out at any time. Slaves were often whipped, branded, or cruelly mistreated. Their owners could kill them for any reason and would face no punishment. Slaves worked everywhere, in private households, in mines and factories, on farms. 
They also worked for city governments on engineering projects such as roads, aqueducts, and buildings. There was a time where um, some Roman leaders were trying to decide if they should have slaves wear a certain type of garment to differentiate them from the rest of the population, and they decided against it because the volume of slaves in the community would have been so high, and to identify themselves with such a large group they were afraid would cause revolt. Roman owners did at times uh, free their slaves or allow them to buy their freedom. The prospect of possible freedom encouraged most slaves to be obedient and hardworking. Slaves were considered property under Roman law. They had no legal personhood. Unlike Roman citizens, they could be subjected to corporal punishment, sexual exploitation, prostitutes were often slaves, torture, and summary execution. Their testimony did not count in a court of law unless they were tortured to provide their testimony. The idea being that they would provide an honest testimony at that point. Okay, so let's move into some application. Since God created us, he knows us pretty well. This passage of scripture is within a larger picture, a larger letter of unity and equality. It is also still breaking things down to specific people groups. While avoiding stereotypes, I think we could safely say certain groups of people in general have certain tendencies, which God is keenly aware of, since you know he created us. In this passage, he addresses some areas where it is more common for each group to lose sight of Christ-likeness. Each individual has certain weaknesses, and groups often share common weaknesses. In each of these groups, there are communicated expectations. There are direct or indirect promises. God isn't just asking us to submit to him in these ways. He is showing us the beauty of his kingdom in household relationships. To the wives, if you are a woman, if you are a married woman, and likely if you are a woman who has never been married, you're probably aware that when women gather together, a likely topic of conversation is their husbands. In my experience, it is more common for this conversation to go poorly than to go pleasantly. There is likely to be a lot of teasing husbands at best and insulting and disrespecting them at worst. It is a frequent character flaw of wives to think poorly of their husbands, to verbally disrespect their husbands. It is a frequent character flaw of women to resist authority and to take charge of situations not being performed up to their standards. God is speaking straight to the heart of each woman and each wife, directly at the point of a character failure that we frequently share in common. In the same way that we are to honor, revere, respect Christ, we are recommended to honor, revere, respect, submit ourselves to our husbands, even as we connect, stand alongside them. Chapter 1, 22 to 23, is the only other place in this passage where we see the Christ-Church relationship that will help us understand what's being said about husbands and wives. And it says, in the message translation, it says this, At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. Again, a poor translation because the word is upatasso to Christ the kephali which we already know does not mean rule. It means the church is submitting itself to Christ, its head, its source. So the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. This is continuing on in verse 23. The church is Christ's body, 
in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. So wives, when you speak and when you act, how are you representing your husband to others? When you do things your husband cannot see, could the knowledge of his presence and his desires or expectations change your behavior? Or would you prefer he didn't know about something you were hiding? One of my hobbies has been uh, buying and selling baby carriers to carry your baby in. I've tried a lot of different kinds of them. And I can't tell you how many times I see in the groups where women are talking about these things. My selling these because my husband found out how many I own. Or hope my husband didn't get the mail today. Or oops, husband came home from work early and found the package in the mail, so now I have to sell something else. And I'm sure this is common in other places as well. And this is one Thing that the Holy Spirit could be talking to people about if this is something that you've ever done and you're white. <clears throat> Finally, women, submit yourselves to the Holy Spirit. If you can't agree with anything else that I'm saying today, you could just ask the Holy Spirit, show me, God, how are you asking me to willingly place myself as a support and an honor to my husband as we dominion the earth together? What are you asking me? How will this look in my life that you are calling me to. We could accurately say that women are not commanded to obey their husbands, are not under the authority of their husbands, and are not commanded to submit. Wives are encouraged to upatasso and to fubio, something along the lines of respect, honor, and reverence. So stop grumbling about submitting and put yourself in line to submit to Christ and to submit to your husband as you submit to Christ. Simply ask God, what does this mean to me? What are you asking me to do? And what is God offering to you, wives, and to me in exchange for our upatasso and our fubio? We'll explore that next. He's offering us love. A husband who is a deliverer, a protector. And a savior. Tender care and nourishing love. To the husbands. The verb form for the wife is not a command. It is in the subjunctive used to express a desire, wish, or hope. For the men, it's a command. Also, the phrase introduced by the word, in order that, is a dependent clause. So actually, the wife's upatasso, because of the way this clause is used, is dependent on the husband's love. So it's almost the reverse of what we may have previously been taught. So the husband is to love his wife in order that she may respect and submit to him. The verb form of command is used toward the men five times in this passage. It is not suggested or recommended this extravagant love. It is commanded. Husbands, love your wives as much as Christ loved. That is the highest standard of love possible. Also, the husbands are called to leave behind their family for the sake of their wife. This is the opposite of how it was in that culture, as I mentioned before. The wives traded the authority of their husbands, all of their childhood, I mean of their fathers, and all their childhood possessions for the authority of their, and family, and gods of their husband. And Paul references another Genesis passage that says the man would leave all behind for his wife. And he's reminding us of that Genesis passage in this section. And the word here used 
four, the type of love the husband should have for his wife is agape, which if you've been in church very long, you may have heard before. And if you haven't, I'll tell you about it. It is unconditional, overflowing, without reason, without cause, without end. It is a love that has no condition to its flow and no maximum to its volume. So what did God mean when he asked husbands to be the kephali of their wife? There is some excellent, excellent scholarly work on this in several respected books, primarily because this word is not used frequently in scripture. It is used frequently outside of scripture in other Greek writings. So outside of the Bible, as I mentioned before, this word could be used in ancient literature as a military term. It means the man is at the helm of the battle line, encouraging and goading on his troops, and also placing himself directly between the enemy and his soldiers. He is prepared both to guide his team and to sacrifice himself for their cause in the same instant. This word has other usage in ancient literature as source from which something would originate, similar to our English term for headwaters. From the headwater source, husbands should flow Christ-like love toward their wives and families. Paul, again, is providing essentially the opposite to what his readers expected to hear him say in this household code. He calls husbands to love their wives to the point of laying down their lives for them rather than killing them when they didn't meet his desires and also leaving everything behind for the sake of the wife. By deliberately not using rosh, ruler, leader, or chief, or exousia, authority over, and choosing kephali, he gives the husbands a totally new role, telling them precisely they are no longer to rule over their wives, no longer to demand or co- dominate them or command them. So while there continues to be some disagreement in Christian circles about the precise meaning of kephali, we know what it is not. And we know from the example Paul lays out of the actions of Christ how kephali is to look. I was um, talking to Benjamin about this last night, and I said, you know how when... Um, you know, you have this husband-wife relationship and the wife says something like, you should love me. And he, what do you mean? Well, you know, or I say, would, would you clean the house? He would just ask me, what do you mean clean the house? Like, could you be a little more specific? Could you, like, do you want the porch swept? Do you want the dishes cleaned? Do you want the laundry done? Like, could you spell out for me when you're telling me, clean the house, the house is a mess, exactly what you're wanting from me. And so Paul kind of does that. He takes a moment to say, okay, I know you're not going to get it when I tell you love your wife as Christ loved you. So I'm going to lay it out for you. It's the longest paragraph of all of, the, of all of them. What I mean when I'm saying love your wife as Christ loved the church. Here's a lot of great examples so you can understand. <clears throat> you may have heard the saying when the husband tells the wife, don't make me read your mind. I can't read your mind. So God doesn't. He says, I'm going to tell you exactly what I mean with a lengthy list of examples from the life of Christ. So here's the way the agape love and the kephali source head is described in this passage. Paul breaks it down because he's so kind to the husbands who will be listening. Giving up his life for her, cleansing her, equal to how much you love and care for your own self and body, nourishing her, tender care, leaving your past behind and starting a new unity with her, become her source, protector, savior, deliverer. A character weakness that we may observe among men is egotism and selfishness. Certainly in, this, in that era and continuing into this one, as a general observation, 
men as a group may tend towards self-focus and are often seen as less of the caregiver in their home or family than their wife. God is addressing this weakness by calling men to the highest standard of love, a love that is unfailing, unending, without regard to whether the one being loved is deserving or not. In fact, the example of Christ's love is this. While we were still sinners, he loved us. If it's getting under a husband's skin that he is commanded to love his wife and she is only recommended to respect him, then the depth of his love is still too shallow. Ask God to fill you with more of his agape love. So men, submit yourselves to the Holy Spirit. If you don't agree with me on anything else, ask the Holy Spirit. Show me, God, how are you asking me to love my wife? In what areas of my life will you, Holy Spirit, point out a lack of love? How would more of your love expressed in my life really look like in my marriage? And men, what is God offering you in exchange for your agape to your wife? This is amazing. By loving her, you cleanse her and you wash her from her blemishes. Does your wife nag you? Love her. In loving her, you cleanse her failures. Does your wife annoy you or complain to you or about you? Love her. In loving her, you smooth out her wrinkles. Does your wife let you down or have significant character flaws? Love her. In loving her, you are cleansing her spots and her imperfections. Your love will draw from her the respect and holiness you wish she had a little more of. To the children. In this culture, all children were children in some form under the paterfamilia, even as adults. So this passage is speaking to all children, young or grown. Oh, and I wanted to mention, I put photos in here of people in our church, not because I wanted to pick on them in particular, but because I wanted us to get that God is speaking to you individually and for you to just ask yourself, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me individually in my life in each of these areas? That's the point of that. It is a frequent weakness with children in general to want to do things their own way. Doing things their own way is likely to be different than what the parent wants them to do. If you are a minor child listening today or an adult child listening today whose parents, you are blessed to have parents still alive on earth, submit yourselves to the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit, show me God. How are you asking me to heed my parents. In what areas of my life will you, Holy Spirit, point out where I'm not doing a good job listening to or cooperating with my parents? What would it look like, God, for me to honor my parents better? Are there specific areas where I am purposely hiding information from them or refusing to honor my parents, whether in their presence or away from it? These beautiful instructions have a promise, just as each group has a promise, that life may go well for you, that you may live long. I was trying to look up as an illustration for this section about children the story of a Marshall High School student, group of students who died in a car accident um, some years ago on Gilbo Road near where I used to live. And um, I was disappointed to find out that I couldn't find the story, primarily because it was too long ago, and primarily because this has already happened several times in every year since then. And in these cases, these young people, I imagine there probably was a time when a parent said, I'm not sure I like those friends, or 
you're too young to be drinking, or if you're going to drink, make sure whoever's driving is sober. And somewhere along the way, each of those children most likely, even if they didn't have a great parent, they probably had a parent who said something along those lines to them prior to the day when they either lost their own life or took the lives of others by not listening to those instructions. If you're a young person and you're wondering why an area of your life really sucks right now, consider asking your parents for input on it. If they've already told you their input and you think their ideas are lame, ask God what he thinks about it. Reconsider if there's some part of your parents' instruction that you could put into action. There's a beautiful promise waiting for you. Don't miss it. To the fathers. All right, so was God also speaking to mothers or only to fathers? Since we see that Christian instruction and parenting is encouraged in many parts of Scripture and directed toward both parents, we can apply the full body of Scripture to understand God isn't specifically excluding mothers as part of the upbringing of their children. However, Paul is following a particular pattern, the household code, which his readers would have immediately recognized. The pattern of that code, as we know, addresses husbands, wives, children, fathers, slaves, and masters. Specifically, this is understood by his listener to speak to that paterfamilia, that high authority figure we might call the grandfather, the oldest living male, who retained the authority over the grown and minor children until he passed away. The mothers, you too, can learn from what God instructs fathers in this passage, But by referencing that primary father, God is again calling on the more responsible one in this group of people to care for the counterpart. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, offer them child training, instruction, admonition, correction, and guidance. There's a couple of weaknesses that we can think of in regard to fathers in general. Um, Two that I'm aware of that are experienced very often by fathers as they deal with their children are escalation or abandonment. By escalation, I mean things like yelling, outbursts like, stop, arguing with the children. Everybody's voices are getting louder and louder in an attempt to overpower each other. And God is telling the fathers, don't stir up your children into that. Don't exasperate them into that anger. And since fathers are told to train and instruct their children, this means that training and instruction can and should be done without that anger. Abandonment is another thing we see often in many cultures with fathers. This could be literal abandonment, lack of physical affection, emotional withdrawal, just not being available or present. One of the ways um, that God has asked me to work on my fubio for my husband, as I've been working on this since summer, is to tell stories about him that reflect well on him. He comes home from work every day and he plays with our kids. And this is not the playing where he's watching TV or reading the news on his iPad while they're kind of trying to talk to him, and he throws a little Lego over here while he's checking his email. This is the kind of playing where he puts all his devices away, and he sits on the floor, and he rolls cars around, and he invents crazy stories and games, and he makes them laugh, and he wrestles with them, and he generally is foolish in all the right sorts of ways that endear my heart to him and draw our kids into relationship with him. While neither he nor I are parents without failures, I daily see the love of Christ expressed from him toward our children. Fathers, what is the promise here for you? Hopefully, it's that the children will not be stirred up and not exasperated into anger. And that, as we see in other parts of Scripture, that the training and instruction may result one day in a good relationship between you and in children who walk with Christ. 
All right, to the slaves. We're almost to the end. As we know, sadly, slavery still exists in our world today. As far as understanding this household code Paul is describing, we'll take time today to apply these lessons to ourselves as employees or other situations where we have that sort of an authority figure that we are responding to. So employees, obey your boss with fubio as you fubio Christ. And he breaks it down for them like this. Not only while being watched, because we know God is watching you, not only in order just to please them, because you are also serving Christ, not only to as to men and women, but as to the Lord with enthusiasm. So again, he's bringing this all back to how we are submitting to Christ. <clears throat> and then he says, whatever good we do, we will receive that same good, whether we are slave or free. So in other words, don't be good only in the hopes of earning your freedom. Don't do a good job at work only in the hopes of that promotion or raise you're looking forward to. Do good. Because the goodness of the Lord will extend back to you, whether you are a slave or freed, whether you get a raise or not. This almost poetic cause and effect thought pattern really emphasizes something that I want to reinforce that's threaded throughout this whole passage, which is as to Christ or unto Christ. And it was the name of my sermon at the beginning as unto Christ. When women choose to upatasso their husbands, it is as they do to Christ. When husbands agape their wives, it is in the manner as Christ does to Christ, as to Christ. When children honor their parents, they are doing it in the Lord as they honor Christ. When fathers train their children, they are doing it in the Lord as they are also submitted under the authority of Christ. When slaves are obeying their masters, they do it in the same way as they obey Christ. When masters show kindness to their slaves, it is because both slaves and master have the same master in heaven. So this reinforces the opening statement, all of you, upatasa one another as you fubio Christ. All of you are in submission to Christ, to each other, as you treat each other in these positive manners, out of honor and respect and reverence to Christ. Each of us reporting to Christ, our true kephali, our true head and source, so that from to him we give honor and from him flows his love. To the masters, employers, supervisors. Many of you here may not own a company, but you may have employees who report to you. You may have other people at work who are in some, um, that sort of relationship with you at work. God has instructions for you as well. Do the same. That is, be submitted and obedient to Christ. Behave as unto the Lord. Stop threatening them. Both of you have the same master in heaven. So this section really undermines slavery at its core. Without directly calling masters to free their slaves, God is reinforcing the idea, repeated in this passage, that the master is not greater than the slave. This was, again, completely countercultural. Even slaves who had been freed in Rome, even those few who gained property or wealth, could never shake the stigma of having been a slave. They were always less. They were always different. They were always humans of lesser value. And God stands that norm on its head, declaring that masters and slaves are equal in heaven's eyes. He states that as God sees it, both of you are equal in slavery to Christ. Again, it all comes back to Christ and how we are responding to him in our roles. So what about the rest of you? What about someone here who isn't today a wife or a husband or a child or a father or an employee or master? We are still encompassed in the overarching upatasso to Christ Upatasso to one another. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 12, 7 and 12, Do for others what you want them to do for you. 
This is the teaching of the laws of Moses in a nutshell. Luke 6.31, do to others as you would have them do to you. And Philippians 2.1-8, another letter of Paul's to a church. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If we would fast forward 2,000 years from now, let's just say that America is still in existence, whatever life looks like in America at that time, and you were to try to explain to a group of American citizens what it meant to have a president of African descent. Not that long ago, everyone of African descent living in this country was a slave, no more value than a farm animal. That was in 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by Abraham Lincoln. That was only 153 years ago. Try to explain what it meant to come extremely close to having a president who was a female, when not that long ago, women in this country didn't even have the right to vote, let alone hold office. That was 1920, the year of women's suffrage, only 96 years ago, five years before my grandmother, who is still alive, was born. To understand the American history of slavery, to see what a historical turning point it was for our country to have the highest position in our country held by a man of African descent. To understand the view of women in America, to see what a historical turning point it is for our country to have come very close to filling the highest position in our country by a woman. So with Paul, to understand the historical culture he was writing to, the words he purposely chose to use, the words he didn't use, is to see what a turning point in Christian history it was, the way he wrote this household code. He absolutely turned it upside down. God's kingdom is one of equality. It is one of love. It is one of self-sacrifice and deference to others. It is, one of strength of, of, it is the one of strength laying down his life for the one who is weak. It is one where all share the same access to Christ, the same standing in our faith, the same right to salvation, and the same charge to lay down our rights and our needs and say, Christ, I am yours. How can I serve you as I serve your people? With God, there is no partiality. There are no favorites. There is no one group with greater value or authority than the other. All are submitted unto Christ. All are submitting to each other in their own ways. God is leveling the playing field in these household relationships and declaring a new way, a way radically different than the old way that everyone expected Paul to write about. And today he calls each of us, draw to our knees at his throne and say, Holy Spirit, what are you asking me to do? What does this mean in my life, in my home, at my work, with my spouse? And I don't agree with a few of those things she said, but I can honor you, Lord, and say, what are you calling me to do? And how is this to look as I walk this out in my marriage, in my home, in my work? 
Lord, where do you see that I am failing in my treatment of others? Where are you asking me to change? Where do you gently point your finger and say, let's clean up this mess you made together? Where are you calling me deeper into the likeness of Christ in my home and my work? We're going to read a few more passages of Ephesians and then we'll, we'll be done. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. This is what I'm calling all of you today and what God is calling all of you today as we respond. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out, experience the breadth, test its length, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives. Full in the fullness of God. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. In light of all this, here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run. On the road God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily, pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Watch what God does. Then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him. Learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Holy Spirit, I repent for when I have not honored my husband, when I have not done what I knew you were asking me to do in my marriage to joyfully love, come alongside, submit, respect my husband. I'm sorry. I've messed up a lot of things in my marriage because I wasn't honoring him and I wasn't honoring you. And I ask for your forgiveness. And Holy Spirit, would you convict each of us now with your gentle touch of where we are not like you in these areas? where we want to do it our own way instead of the way you called us to. Would you draw us into transformation, into love? And would you teach us gently in our hearts, how does this look? What are you asking me to do? Lord, what do you see in my heart? What do you hear in my words that is not like you? I want to be transformed into more of you as a wife, as a child, as a parent, as an employee, as a husband, as a supervisor. Transform us, God, to your likeness. 
if you would like to invite the Lord in to begin this transformation in you, would you just stand and open your hands to him? And if there's something that you know you need to repent about in these areas, would you just stand and say, God, I'm sorry, I've messed this up. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you take our ashes and transform them into beauty in our relationships? If there's anything else that you need prayer for today, we'll have some folks up here who will pray with you, or if you want, I'll be here if you want to talk to me or pray. And um, have a great week. Be blessed. Let the Holy Spirit fill you.